Bibles with you this morning. We're working in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, we're in the first chapter, and it's um, just getting rolling good in the book of Ephesians. There's so much truth here. Calling this this series, Treasure So Rich, today we're going to look just a little longer at the union with Christ. And uh, as we do this morning, we'll be treating probably just the fifth verse, but let's just read part of this passage, familiarize our hearts with us. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. We'll begin in the third verse. We'll have a short prayer and then we'll begin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious fathers, we come to this text this morning, very familiar text to us by now, but a very glorious passage. I just ask that you open the hearts and minds of the hearers here this morning. Uh, Father, that you go past my inability to speak and my simple words, and you speak directly to your people through the power and working of your Holy Spirit. Father, surely in a congregation the size of this this morning, there's so many varied needs, but your word never returns void. It always perfectly accomplishes what you've called it to do. Do that in our midst this morning. Fill us, Father. We come as hungry, humbles, beggars, seeking the truth of your word this morning to fill us. Fill us just now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we open this Lord's Day with our study in Ephesians 1, and I want to draw your immediate attention this morning to the fifth verse uh, to this passage once again and I want you to see this phrase in verse 5 that it's translated in the ESV uh, quote according to the purpose of his will unquote and I just want to start this morning by saying man that's a really loaded statement according to the purpose of his will that's a loaded statement that that has a, a ton of truth connecting to it and I'm just going to work on that just momentarily this morning because what God has done according to his will is connected you with his son before the foundation of the world so that you can be holy and blameless before him and love he's brought he, he not only chose you but he's predestined you in other words he, he he chose you and that's sometimes that's good enough for our culture today just to know that somebody's done something good and and they can just kind of write not only did he chose you but he brought it all to pass before you in your own time in your own place so that your head could be turned from the sin of this world and turned to the loving heavenly father who has placed you lovingly in his son that that statement is is loaded with truth his will his perfect will 
And God's will to unite you to his son so that we can inherit, possess all the perfections of those heavenly blessings that verse 3 tells us about, 3 and 4. I, I think we sorely underestimate God's plan sometimes, God's will, the magnitude of it, the glory of it, the cost of it, right? But it was born out of his will and love, and it is a story of grace and mercy. And I mean, we... We read along as John was taken up into heaven last week into the vision in Revelation chapter 5, that heavenly scene, that throne room. Remember, this is kind of the end of God's will. This is kind of all the promises that God brought to us. And I wanted to show you over the last several weeks the sovereignty of God that he can bring all of these things to pass. So we, we went into the book of Revelation and we looked there in the throne room that John got a vision of and there is God sitting on the throne and all these unimaginable things, the lightning and the thunder and, and you know, heaven's just going to be a glorious mystery. But they're standing beside the throne, able and worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Father is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And Scripture tells us undoubtedly that He is the one that all of history points to, that He was the one worthy. He is in His rightful position there. And that's kind of the summation of all of God's promises. We can see it fulfilled, but do we believe it and do we live like it's going to be fulfilled someday? That's my challenge, right? We must live like that is the truth because it's the truth. So we read along and we saw that, and it's in an effort to help us see a sovereign God in three persons who has not forgotten, he has not omitted one detail of his plan and sovereign will. In many ways, this is comforting to the believer, right? There's a great comfort here, for it's either Christ or chaos in this world. There's no in-between. God's sovereignty is such that he has total power, total control, uh, we heard it just in the story of Freeman Smith and his bicycle accident. We read it from the book of Acts this morning and Paul being stoned. And time and time again, he was stoned and persecuted for the Christian faith. But that man, uh, Freeman Smith, and the man, Paul, both loved Jesus and not going to be called home to their heavenly home one moment, even one second, one millisecond sooner than God has planned. That's how sovereign he is. Every molecule in all of the world is under his perfect control and loving watch care at this very moment. It may seem out of control to you, but it's not to God. He has a will. He's going to bring that will to pass. Now, there's two sides to that. Not only is he in total control, but he knows that I was ugly to my wife this morning when I woke up, right? No, but he knows when I am ugly to her. I guarantee you that. There's two parts to that, right? So what is God's will? I want to spend just a little time this morning as we look into that. God's will is that which is supreme, beloved. God's will will not, indeed cannot, be thwarted. And you remember just a few weeks ago as we were speaking from Job, Job is a great place to go to look to the sovereignty of God and suffering. Job was second-guessing God and questioning God regarding the unrighteous and why, in his own human estimation, why God had not brought judgment on them yet. They should have been called down on at any time. You ever feel that way about somebody you see? 
going around in his evil. He's just able to spread it. God should just call judgment down on him. And we have to, as Christians, believe that God is allowing that to take place for a reason that fits his will, his perfect will. If he's in total control, Job needed to understand that God was allowing the unrighteous to get away with this, and there was a reason why. But God doesn't give Job an answer to that specific question because God just understands that his will is unalterable and Job needed to come to that understanding and we need to come to that understanding. And so instead of answering Job's specific question, he just turns and he starts to read his resume. That's the great part about God is if we ever wonder who he is, we just read his resume. We've all got a copy of it. Some of us got it in different versions, but this is God's resume. This is God's will. As we read from verse, verses 9 and 10, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. It, it doesn't have to go unknown. It's all according to his purpose, which he set forth. And the, the point of everything is in Christ. And that's the plan for the fullness of time. There is no other plan, right? This is going to come to pass. It will not fail. And that plan is to unite all things in, things in heaven and things on earth in him or in Christ. He won't fail at that. So he looks at Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who laid its cornerstone? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts of man or given understanding even to your mind, Job? Have you an arm like God? Do you have power like me? Job, my will will come to pass. God gives Job just a glimpse of his resume and Job immediately understands why he is who he is and why he is the one who deserves all the glory and everything. That's our God, beloved. Paul writes in Romans 9, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Everything is in God's will, plan, and purpose. When Job responds, he can't even begin to muster even a coherent answer to God in the beginning. He, he begins to understand who he's just spoken to and the omnipotence of God. God, because all he can say is, You deserve all the glory. I know that you can, this is what he says in Job 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered things too wonderful for me which I did not know. God has the will and God has the omnipotence or the power to carry out that will. That's an important point, beloved, for your eternal security. Nothing man can do to stop, change, thwart, or supersede God's will, not one thing not one thing I don't care what family you were born into I don't care what school you go to I don't care how much money you make I don't care how much power you attain it is because God has a will and you can't do one thing to thwart his will J.I. Packer wrote these words to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless but it stabilizes the saints and indeed it does. Not only does God have an unstoppable will, what we find in the ESV translation uh, has no need to supply or, do supp or does supply any other adjective telling us about God's will. ESV just tells us it's according to God's will there in verse 5. Do you see it? And I don't know what translation you have this morning or whether I have a copy of it, but it's amazing to me, and I, I love the ESV and I preach out of it because it's closest to the Greek and still readable. But the ESV finds no reason to put any type of adjective telling us what kind of will God has. 
The NASB says according to his kind intentions of his will. The CSB says according to the good pleasure of his will. The NIV says in accordance with his good will. The NLT, which is close, more closely to a paraphrase, which I love here, says verse 5 like this. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. You see that? So the ESV leaves out any kind of adjective. But why does it do that? Because God's will is nothing but perfect, beloved. It is nothing but kind and good. Whatever he does or whatever he brings to pass is good to the nature of God. Because God is holy, he is righteous, right? Because God is holy, he is righteous, and righteousness means that everything he does is good even if it seems bad to us, even if it seems like it's a life-ending bicycle accident, or if you've preached the gospel in stone like Paul was, God is going to bring glory to himself through those moments that seem like chaos to us. It's not chaos to him. We don't need an adjective there because there's no other way to see God's will other than what is good. And if it's good, isn't that what we want, beloved? God's will to come and to happen in our lives. Here's the truth. Your salvation and union with Christ is a product of God's eternal, irrefutable will. It is unalterable by any force and all to the praise of his eternal glory. Therefore, beloved, your salvation and your election to eternal pleasure is not based on any merit that is in you. It is not kept by any power that is in you or dependent upon your performance here. It is solely based on the unchangeable, unalterable, eternal will of Almighty God. And this is good. Indeed, this is very, very good. Because if we had to be the recipients of a prize due to our good effort, how many of you all would fail? We all would have, right? That's the understanding that we have that God's will is the one that brings us into salvation. So Paul writes to these Ephesians what the eternal, unconditional election of the believer in Christ is sustained by. And it's sustained by God's perfect and good will. But he also tells us what it's motivated by. It's sustained because it's God's will. It's good because it's God's will. It's perfect because it's God's will. But what motivates God to do these things? Well, Paul tells us there. Do you see it? you got to go back because what they've done here is uh, in the Greek, verses 3 through uh, uh, 14, is all one long sentence. And I don't have time to completely uh, help you understand that this morning, and I don't think you need to as we go through it this morning. But in the English, for the English reader, we had to put some periods in there because we can't breathe like that. So what you see here is that taking place because you've got to add the last part of verse 4. You see verse 4 there? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Stop there and just put a little 5 if you want. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In other words, the motivation for his acting is his love to predestine us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. It was for his glory, yes, but it was out of his love that he predestined us to bring us together in Christ across the finish line through perseverance, through all the toils and struggles in this world. It was his love that motivated his act of his will. It was his love that motivated our salvation. It was God's love that activated his choosing us before the foundation of the world to be united to his beloved son because of, uh, all the blessings of so great a salvation are only found in his beloved son. What's the scripture tell us about God's love? It doesn't tell us God's loving, though it tells us God's loving. God is love. His nature is love. God is the essence of love. Some days we may love really well and do really well uh, of giving ourselves of a, a sacrificial love that, that has no motivation for our own glory. And that's the agape love that Scripture talks about. But Scripture tells us very specifically that God is love, and the measure for our loving is a measurement of how we love God. 1 John 4, 7 through 12 says it this way, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, you can't love properly in this place, and boy, does our world mess love up today, right? Uh, love is never sin. And our world says we should just be able to marry who we love. It has nothing to do, that love, all is self-centered. It has nothing to do with the love of God that, Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13 that is all those things that Paul says it is. It's perfect love. It's a selfless love. It's the kind of love that we're supposed to love our neighbor with, that God is, that God has loved us with. Now, how does that manifest itself in his will? Verse 8, anyone who does not have the love, who does not love, does not know God because God is love. Verse 9, here's where I wanted to be. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Stay with me here. Romans 5, 8 gives us the same vision. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, starting to get a vision of the motivation that God had. I'm going to take you there. Just stay with me. All of your salvation is an action by God's will motivated out of his great love. It's not of your own doing. There is no way your salvation was not going to happen. Because this God, with his sovereign will, predestined your union with his beloved son before the foundation of the world to take place in time in which you lived when on that day his love was poured out on you and his gospel, and you were able to respond in godly repentance and faith to believe that gospel for your salvation. But that's your aspect of it. Because God planned this before the foundation of the world. What does that mean, right? God was not surprised by your sin, beloved. He's not surprised by any of the mistakes that you've made or that you're going to make on your way there. Let me tell you this, you want some structure in your life, you want a, a little assurance today, look to David. David was the king, the man after God's own heart, right? You guys know the scriptures. It's plain as day that David was the king in the Old Testament. In fact, he was a prefigurement of Christ. He was Christ's father and Christ's son. And Christ was of the line and lineage of David. But what did David do? 
David did everything right up until the moment he went out that day when the kings go out to war. David went to his roof and he looked out and he saw Bathsheba. Ooh, did he get in trouble? He should have been out to war. You guys know the story. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And to try to cover it up, <clears throat> he killed her husband, had him killed by an Amorite sword, Scripture says in 2 Samuel 12, if you want to read it. Had him killed by an Amorite sword because he moved him to the front of the battle because he couldn't cover it up any other way. And though God told David, the sword will never depart from you, God never said to David, too bad, buddy, you messed it up, you're out. Because when Nathan the prophet comes to David in chapter 12, he says to him, you are that man who has sinned that sin. And in chapter 12, just towards the end of that verse, Nathan also says to David, but through this sin, you will not die. God has covered your sin. Listen, David may have been unaware that he was going to get full of himself and sin that day, but God knew about it. That didn't make him any less saved. That didn't blemish any of the glory that he was going to receive. You know why? Because it's not David's to keep. It was built and based in the perfect work and blood of Jesus Christ. And it was God's will before the foundation of the world, motivated by his love. Where do we see this? How, do, how can I help you see this correctly this morning? I want you to see this, and I want you to understand so that it brings assurance to you like you've never had before in your life. Listen, you go back to creation, that's what you do, because you remember this epistle to the Ephesians gives us salvation from the perspective of God down to man. That is, man is in sin and he cannot choose God. He has to be chosen by God. And for that to take place, God had to have a plan in place. He had to have a plan in place that brought actions to bear on man while he was in his sin. That's what he was saying back in Romans and 1 John, that before we even knew we were sinners, before we were even born, God had a plan for our sin. God is not mistaken here. God is not coming along behind and just fixing things up as we mess them up. God has had a plan from the beginning to take care of our sin. And this is his, his listen, it's the pleasure of his will. And it's motivated by his love. And you say, well, how did that happen? Let's go back to creation. Before sin, let's look at the actions of God. We find that there in the first three chapters of Genesis, see his plan from the beginning. And you see this plan begins with God from all of eternity. He had a perfect relationship within the Godhead. And I've said this before, but I, I love to teach this. Within the Godhead throughout eternity, through the Father, Son, and the Spirit, was a perfect unity and community and fellowship. There was no defects there. And it was out of that goodness, out of that perfection, it was out of that unity and community and fellowship, out of that deep love that the Father shared for the Son and the Son for the Spirit, and they shared for one another, that God created God created man to lavish his love and grace upon and to receive glory from those men. So when we go to the book of Genesis, we get past sin because we're looking from sin up. 
And we see a marred world and we're thinking, how can all this take place? Surely it has something to do with me. But you're making yourself too important because sin is so sinful that you might even think that you had something to do with your own salvation. Oh, it was all God. Listen to the words. It was all the Father, all the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you want to base that, we did this last Sunday night. In John 17, we know that Jesus longed to be back and consumed in the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. He longed not only to be back, but he longed for those he came to save to be there with him so that they could be perfectly one. And he would say in the first person, as you, Father, and I are perfectly one, so that they too may be perfectly one. You see, God's plan was to reconcile us to him. He knew that we were going to sin. It's built into the creation account. It's right there. You only have to get three chapters in the Bible to find why Jesus was necessary, right? Go with me here just a minute. If you've got your Bibles you want to turn over, that's fine. I've got mine marked, so I can go through it rather quickly, and I don't want to leave you behind by doing that. But there's something that takes place in Genesis 1. Creation, right? Duh. (laughs) Come on. It's creation. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God spoke into existence everything that exists. That's absolutely amazing. But that's not the emphasis, beloved. We don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. So in the language is a linguistic device in the Hebrew. And in every verse we see this. Let's just begin in verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You know why I'm here this morning? is because me and the young men went through this on Friday, and I've just been in Genesis, and it's just burning in my heart this morning. Listen, there was chaos kind of. There was darkness, no form. Everything was void. It didn't have distinction and meaning. But there was God, and there was the Holy Spirit hovering. And God said... Verse 3, let there be light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heaven. You starting to see a pattern here? Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. The focus here is on the God that's doing the creating. And the Holy Spirit hovered over those waters. And who was the agent in creation? Well, when God spoke, what did he speak? He spoke words that are recorded. Who is the living word? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the agent to God's word. He did the work. God spoke the word. He was the word that was spoke. Jesus was the agent in creation, and the Spirit was there. Why were they creating? Just to show off? I guess one could kind of say it in that way because it's all for their glory. All for the Godhead, the Trinitarian Godhead that we worship's glory. Because if you go back through these passages, you'll see something else that's repeated time and time again. And God said, let there be light, and it was good. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together, and it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetations, and it was good. You getting another pattern here? 
Everything that God created was good. Everything that God created was good. You get up through day one, two, three, four, five, and six. What happens on day six? It's the pinnacle of the creation. It's why God created. So God created man in his own image, it says. Let's make man in our image. That's plural because it's thought by most Hebrew scholars that God is not only speaking of himself as a Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit there in verse 26, but he's also talking, and, and the, as we know from the rest of Scripture, the heavenly host is listening. They're seeing all this creative act, and yet they will say, and Peter, the angels long to look into what God's doing in the heart of man, that salvation of man is more glorious than everything that just took place in the first chapter of Genesis. So then God said, let us, plural, make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27 says the result of that, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And then verse 28 is the pinnacle of this. And this is what I like to teach the young men because, you know, man is so thought to be a cancer on the planet, but the planet was made for man. All of God's goodwill and all of his good intention and his love created human beings so that he could have fellowship with them. And he created everything that he created so that we could be master over it. And that was good, very good, he said. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of heaven, and over everything that moves upon the earth. God did it for us. God loves us. He's a. Think about how you think about your own children. You love them, you want everything for them, you do everything so that they can flourish from changing their diapers to paying the college education. All of it is so that they can flourish as human beings in this place. Listen up, kids. If you're hearing me this morning, your parents have done everything so that you can flourish. And they loved you. They did it out of their love, and they did it out of a will to take care for you and to nurture you and to raise you the way that you should be raised. And you made some mistakes along the way. You made some real mistakes along the way. Maybe you crashed the car when you were 16 and a half. I'm sorry, out here you got to be 17. Maybe you crashed the car and bent the fender, right? Devin, this is coming, I promise. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to do things wrong. But does that make your parents not love you? No, they love you all the more because they're teaching you through this. They want to hold your hand and to walk you through it. They want you to flourish. They want you to know that you live in a world that's like that. You've turned from them, maybe, and you've disobeyed them, but they still love you. They love you with a love that you can't extinguish by wrecking a car. I promise. I've done it. My mom will be here in a few weeks, so you all can ask her. More than just one, by the way, but that's a different story. And what do we see? A God, a heavenly Father who loved us so much that he created us. And he didn't just give us a car, beloved. He gave us a planet. He gave us the earth. He gave us dominion over everything. And what did we do? Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree? We brought sin into the world. We brought sin into the world, and we caused the death, disease, and destruction of everything in the world because of that sin. And that sin has blinded us, beloved. There's no doubt what sin has done in our lives. John 8.34 says we're a slave to sin. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says we're blinded by sin. John 3.16, ultimately, if you get past the 16th verse, tells us we're condemned by God. Romans 3, 
9 through 21 says that we have no ability to seek after God. Ephesians 2, the very book we end, says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're not able to earn our freedom. We can't buy back our freedom, but our Father still loves us. And how did he love us? We see it there in, in verses, beginning in verse 12 in Genesis 3. Man said, well, let's jump ahead. I don't want to get into that problem, the man blaming the woman for what happened. I want to go down to verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between your verse 15, and between your offspring and her offspring. Listen, here's, here's Jesus in his salvific work in Genesis 3. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the proangelion, the first gospel that we see in all of Scripture. It is, he shall bruise your head. In other words, the Satan, the enemy, will bruise Christ's head on the cross. Or excuse me, I'm sorry. That Christ on the cross will crush the head of the enemy and that the cross was just a bruise to his heel. That God would send and have a plan for sin on the cross of Calvary from this moment in time forward before the foundations of the world were created tells us a little bit of something about the will of God that we haven't thought about in a while. You see, the plan wasn't, oh my goodness, they sinned, what should I do? The plan was, I love them so much, even through their sin, I'm going to send my son to die from them before the foundation of the world. God's not surprised by your sin, beloved. God is not surprised by your sin. That sin has blinded you, but God said, in the right time, in the right place, we see it in John 1, 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was to make propitiation for all his beloved children that he loved, because his will would not be thwarted no matter what we might do. And he knew everything that we would do. You see, God loved you so much that this was the plan before the foundation of the world to to take care of your sin in his son, Jesus Christ, that he would put you together in Jesus Christ in such a way that when he looked at you, he no longer saw your sinfulness. He no longer saw your mistakes. He no longer saw your, all the bad things that you've done, but he sees the love and the mercy of his beloved son. It was not a secondary issue for God. It was a primary one. He created the world, created everything for us, and then he made a way for us to be saved in our sins. From our way looking back, we come along about the part where God does the predestining, that his gospel has made it to us, whatever year it made it to you. Maybe it was 1996. It may have been 1996, but to God it's always been the plan. Do you see that? From the foundations of the world, God has united you with his son, Jesus Christ, so that you would be saved. And you say, how can he do that? How can he do that and form my sin? How can he take on all of that? And there's the story of the cross. 
Because God is holy and sin cannot stand before him. He wanted to make us holy and blameless. You remember those words from Ephesians 1? So that we could be before him in love. He wanted to adopt us into his family. But we can't be in his family with our sin. So he had to do something for our sin. He had to unite us to his son so that his son could die on our behalf. That's the cross. That's the good news. We are the indebted bride. John and Susie met when they were just children. Soon their friendship would become a love story as they grew past adolescence into young adulthood. John was making big plans as he and Susie went into the home stretch of their sophomore year in high school. Plans for their future together, like young men tend to do, right? Which he believed would be just a couple of years down the road when they graduated high school. But you know the way things are, they change the best laid of plans. Susie's father had taken a new job. It was a new job with new opportunities in a new state. A state that was halfway across the United States from John and as good as halfway around the world from all of John's hopes and dreams for a future with Susie. And you may think the story ends there, but it doesn't. John had gone off to college. He worked hard to learn an upper-level degree and was at the top of his classes. He eventually lost track of Susie over the years, but he never stopped thinking about her and the dreams that they shared together when they were in high school. He never married. He decided to pour his life instead into his career as an engineer, and he excelled at these things. But as things go and time went by, he understood there was something greater missing in his life. Ten or so years goes by, and John and Susie meet again. It was in their hometown near to where they went to the sky school, near to where they'd shared all the hopes and dreams about a future together. And to make this long story short, Susie had been divorced from an abusive relationship that left her with two children, and she was reeling from years of hurt and pain. It also turns out that Joe John never knew this, that Susie's father was an abusive alcoholic. You see, this move that had separated them so many years earlier was for a restart in Susie's dad's life for a new job in a new town with new opportunities. But Susie's life was left broken from her past and her failed marriage and her father's abuse. And to make matters worse, now she was substantially in debt due to her former husband's gambling problems. She believed that no one would ever love her with all of her baggage and all of her history. So in meeting John again after all these years, she just wasn't quite completely honest about all these things and her story. The relationship between John and Susie quickly gained momentum. John knew that this was what was missing in his life these past years, and quickly he and Susie began to fall in love again. But Susie feared the truth about her past would wreck this relationship again and again and kept it all in, and finally she could no longer. She had to tell John the truth. You know, would he still love her? Would he still have the feelings for her? Would the plans that they had together still be consummated? She told him everything in the hope that he would forgive her. He knew, she knew that it could soon be over. How could he love her in the face of all of her financial debt? How could he love her in the face of all of her burdens, all the things, all the scars that life had left on her, all the mistakes she made, all of these things? How could he love her enough to carry these burdens for her? But, beloved, that's not how the story ends. 
What happened with John and Susie is that they got married and lived happily ever after. Why? Because John, as her groom, loved Susie for who she was. Because she was an object of his love. You see, he decided that he would just take on all of her debt and her hurt. And he would love her. Because that's what he had decided to do from the beginning. Beloved, this is a beautiful illustration of how God loves us. It doesn't matter what we do. We are looking at it from our perspective back to him. But from his perspective to us, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God because of the will of God and his motivation of love in Jesus Christ. You have been united to Christ at the pleasure of God's will and at the behest of his steadfast love. I'll read it in Romans. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he is also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, Paul wrote this in the past tense because he is seeing it from God's perspective. It is not you that carries the load. It is Christ that carries the load. It is not you that has earned God's love. It is Christ that has earned God's love. It is not you that has bought your freedom. It's Christ's blood that has bought, his, bought your freedom. And beloved, you're in a place where you cannot be touched. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he also with him not graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and he's at the right hand, Revelation 5, of God. And indeed is interceding for us at this very moment. So Paul's exaltation here is, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake all the day long we're being killed, slaughtered like sheep. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it was the will of God to unite you to his son before the foundations of the world, motivated, out, motivated by his great love to bring you into his family for the eternal pleasure that he will pour out on you and all those heavenly blessings. Please know this. And this will have to be a word for a different hour probably. But you were united to a suffering servant who sacrificially suffered and died in your stead. But also know, beloved, that that little lamb of Calvary is a returning, conquering king whose dominion will never end. Live accordingly. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to a close today. And I just pray that you work in the hearts of your beloved people. Work in them uh, salvation and an understanding of that salvation that is as strong as the will and the love and the 
love of your son that it's built on. May they forever know that they can be assured that it's found and it's founded and it is anchored in the death and burial and resurrection of your son Jesus Christ. That there's no one who can take it from them nor can they lose it in moments of weakness. Father, make us a people who live as if we know that this little lamb who was slain is a king that is coming to whom every knee shall eternally bow. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.